0: Hi folks, this is Jack Speargo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 15th, 2018. We are up to episode... Well, I just closed my screen by accident, so let's see if I can get this right. Episode 2146 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday show, so it's a listener feedback show. But this is actually a listener feedback show that we're calling a special edition, because every question is aquaponics. So why would I do that? Well, since I launched my indoor aquaponics project on YouTube, I've become almost overwhelmed with aquaponics uh, commercials, aquaponics questions. And uh, the other thing is, if you can't tell by listening to my voice, I've, I've picked up a cold. My uh, my my snot-slinging grandson that goes to school with snot-slingers every day has come home and slung snot around here, first infecting my wife, then infecting me. Um, and, and Dorothy dealt with this for about a week before I got it. And uh, she had a pretty decent case of laryngitis. Um, so I'm trying to take it easy. This week because I've got Liberty Forum coming up in just a few weeks, and I I don't need to be going into a a public speaking engagement with a bad voice. I usually leave one with a bad voice from spending three or four days talking nonstop to people, but uh, I I try to go in with a good voice. So I'm gonna just gonna be kind of an easy show for me today, uh, and it won't get me into any like uh, you know uproars or anything. No jack rants on the stupidity with the shit hole c- controversy or anything like that. So. It it will be good for my voice, and hopefully, it'll be what you're interested in. It must be what you're interested in, or the sheer number of questions wouldn't come in. I also think this is like a really great topic for us to be delving deeper into as modern survivalists. Uh, I hear from people all the time. I'm waiting until I have more land. I'm waiting until I have more land. You know, the system that I've come up with, even though I've only built it partially as a as a prototype, uh, the prototype proves it works. And it's probably not a good system in the winter because you need lights and heat and stuff like that if you didn't do it indoors. Uh, but it's an outdoor system running from, like, when you when you get into the area, you only have to worry about frost instead of heavy freezes, all the way till the first heavy freeze. I mean, even without a greenhouse it or anything, it would be the most productive thing in the world you could do in 64 square feet. Yeah, I said 64 square feet. And the way I'm thinking about redesigning, it might be as big as 80 square feet. But still, I mean... Who doesn't have 80 square feet? Who doesn't have 64 square feet? You know what? You could do it in 20. There's 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 lots of great ways to do that. And it is a low energy system as long as you're not doing what I'm doing right now, which is for educational purposes in the wintertime doing it indoors. And uh, we have a bunch of great questions on this. I'll get to all of them in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Yes, a new sponsor. I know I don't take them often, but we've uh, we've... we've You know, been around long enough that I have a way, kind of working a new, another new sponsor in. Because we got two new sponsors today, one we brought in last week, and one we're bringing in this week. Uh, Ridge Wallet is awesome. Ridge Wallet makes a minimalist wallet. You can get them in polycarbonate, you can get them in titanium, you can get them in aluminum. Uh, They're just awesome, and uh, they've become my new favorite minimalist wallet. What they do is they let you carry almost as much as you would carry in a conventional wallet, in a lot less space, a lot more comfortably. And a hell of a lot more organized. And do you guys know what a problem identity theft has become? And I'll tell you what's starting to happen more and more. It used to be that the biggest way that identity thieves were getting credit card information was with skimmers. So you'd go to a gas station and they put a skimmer in there. And when you slot your card... Well, what what, what people have figured out now with all these RFID cards or RFID tags in your credit cards and stuff, people can just get like an $8 part off of eBay. I'm serious. as a heart attack. And, and just wave it at your ass, basically, as you pass by and beep. And they've got all your credit card information. Scary, isn't it? These wallets prevent that type of RFID threat. They act as a shield. Really, really cool. And they look great. They also have really cool phone cases, an awesome backpack, backup power system. They're a great company. And I'm, I'm very happy to be working with them. They launched on Kickstarter with a successful $300,000 campaign. Uh, the rep that reached out to me is a long-term listener to the show. Uh, they're committed to a long-term partnership with us, and I think it's a great product that we have a real need for in our marketplace. And by the way, did I mention they just look badass? They just look good. This is the kind of thing that you you know when, when you want to have something that works and is beautifully is beautifully functional and beautiful, the type of stuff you want. And you know me, guys. Do you think you didn't get an MSP discount here? Really? Do you think I'm going to let a new partner in the door? without also doing something for MSB. 10% off all products. 10% off all products at the RidgeWallet.com. Actually, RidgeWallet.com. No, the. I guess they moved a little faster on their domain than I did. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. Brought these guys to you last week, man. Just awesome meat shipped right to your front door. Uh, I just made my acorn squash soup with their bacon. Oh, my God. And I got on board. We talked about baking bacon last week. I got on board. I picked up a, a pan at the grocery store yesterday, uh, like the caller was talking about last week, where you have, like, let's say, a cookie rack and the pan beneath it. And I baked the bacon on there. And, man, doing the squash soup like that was awesome. Seriously, I, did. I took this, the pan, threw the bacon on it, took another pan, with the squash and apples in it, threw them in the oven together. And when the bacon was done, I just pulled the bacon out, took it off the pan, and then just dumped the grease right out of the bottom of the pan into the pot threw my onions in there, sautéed them up, and made the squash soup, and then added that amazing, amazing uncured bacon to it. Oh, my. Yes, you should be jealous, but you don't have to be. Because a box of beautiful meat could show up at your house every month or every other month from ButcherBox.com. And if you're an MSB member, you can get $10 off every box which you can apply to free bacon for life. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. If you can't tell, I'm really excited about these two new partners. And I I really should refer to our sponsors as partners because all of them have been with us a long time and have been committed to the community. And uh, that's what I see out of ButcherBox and Ridge Wallet. So check them out today. We don't have a history segment today. Neither David Verne nor Southpaw Ben uh, has gotten us an updated episode. So I'll just remind you before we get into your questions about aquaponics, uh, that you can help support the show by joining the MSB. And just think about this. So far this year, this is the 15th of January. The 15th of January, I have brought you to the MSB, Ridge Wallet, ButcherBox, and GunAdapters.com. In 15 days, I've brought you three premium sponsors of the MSB with great discounts, and I ain't done yet. Oh, by the way, real quick, I heard from a few of you guys last week uh, that the high mowing discount code wasn't working. I reached out to Maggie over there, and she got a new code in, so everything is updated, and your high mowing seeds discount will work as well. So consider joining the MSB if you haven't already done so. I think that those discounts alone would probably be worth the price of the MSB, and there's like 60 more, without exaggerating at all. I think it's more like 70, but I'm hedging my bet a little bit because I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'm not in full functional mode today. So anyway, think about the MSB, joining, in, et cetera. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more, and let's get into it. So um, I in an effort to reduce how much talking I have to do today and kind of preserve my voice, I'm going to truncate the questions. And some of these questions came in from multiple people, and I'll back in some of the details But I may not get as specific as the person asking the question would have liked. That's probably better for a broad general overall. But here's the thing. If I completely ignored a part of your email, it probably means you don't need to worry about it. And that's something I've I've learned over the years in all things. But specifically things like aquaponics that are new to people, even gardening, right? Anything like that, technologies, etc., People tend to over-worry. They get what I call celery disease. and that's I've talked about this before. Parsley disease is even better because parsley is even less important to the end product, even though it's good for the end product of chicken soup. Let's say you had a cold like me, and uh, <clears throat> I said, you know what, i got a chicken soup recipe for you. If you make this chicken soup, it'll be a good thing to you know, have while you have a cold in this cold weather, too. And I gave you this great recipe, and, and the recipe included parsley. There are people that if they did not have parsley would not make the soup. Even though they have the garlic and maybe a little bit of lemon with some lemon zest and the chicken and the carrots and the celery and the onions and and all of the good stuff that goes in that soup, it would still make a fantastic soup. But since they don't have parsley, they can't adapt. And I find when people start taking on the, the concept of doing something like aquaponics that they tend to get into that mode. They start reading right and it, i mean in some ways the forums that are out there today are the, like the best thing we've ever had in the world for getting questions answered and getting support from other people but in some ways they're one of the worst first of all you get people because they've done a lot of posting and they're good writers that people think they're experts even though they've ever actually done anything at all like you go to their YouTube channel and they have, don't have a single video on the shit they claim to be an expert about. They don't have a single picture on Facebook. They don't have anything they've actually done. They just know everything because they've read, which means they know very little in, in reality. Okay, They might actually be right a lot of the time, but in the reality of adapting to the situation, they have no idea. The other example, though, is people that really do know their shit. And they have built a system to the, the, the peak of perfection for their situation. And sometimes those people come off with like this attitude, like if you don't do it this way, which is the best way, then you might as well not do it at all. And that's complete shit. So what happens is a new person just trying to get some basic answers goes out to aquaponics forums or Facebook groups or whatever the hell it is, and they say something and they get beat up, like you're stupid, your fish are going to die, or oh my God, if you're going to do that, you should... Look, use those resources... But in the end, don't be afraid to just say, this is what I have, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to take the plunge. But I mean, sometimes I just... I I read emails, and I'm not picking on anybody to ask a question here. Please don't take on everyone. But I read things online, comments on YouTube, etc., with people that are so worried about every nitpicking thing. And I, I think... Maybe it would be good if you could get Quaaludes at, at like you know Walmart or something and, and just have a Quaalude, once a, not all the time just once a week and just freaking relax i i 'm going extreme there, but really, I do feel like people are way too uptight about this stuff and so if you asked a question with a million details and I ignored one of them all together because you 're like that 's my question that means it 's not important don 't worry about it okay all right so let 's start out with my first bullet point today is what is the best type of bed to make from fifty five gallon drums? And the gentleman that wrote this basically says he has three 55-gallon food-grade plastic drums. And what he wants to know is would they make good wicking beds where we have water flowing through media in the bottom or controlled with a float valve and you have dirt sitting on top of that media, which is usually to be like a lava rock that wicks water up into the soil so we can grow in soil but have a constantly irrigated and fertigated environment from that aquaponics water. Um, And he basically wanted to know like, should I cut them long ways and would they be deep enough or should I cut them in half, like through the center? Okay, so my belief is that most vegetables put 90% of their roots into the first six inches of soil and don't go much deeper than that. That doesn't I mean there's not hair roots or anything, like that, but the primary place they grow is six inches of soil. Now, if it's a carrot that grows eight inches, okay, right? But when we look at a wicking bed, as we get down toward the media, we get to a point where the soil is really, really wet, and that's usually about two inches before we hit the water layer. That first two inches is really, really wet. So I feel that you need is a viable wicking bed okay, for large crops like a pepper plant or something like that. At least 8 inches and 10 inches would be better of soil above wherever your water level is. So if we cut that thing long ways, it's going to be about 11 inches deep. 11 inches deep, I think, is about what barrel is if we do it long, long ways. And... That would mean that we could have, if we wanted to go 8 inches minimum, we could have 3 inches. But, of course, we never really fill them all the way to the top. You need a little bit of lip so stuff doesn't get knocked over there. So, you know, then we're talking like 2 inches. And I would prefer to be in that 8 to 10 inch above water level range for my wicking beds. That's a great distance. You get nice, moist soil when you do that. So... If we look at cutting these barrels in half, long, so the other question was, well, what about cutting them in, you know, down the, instead of long ways across, across the center? Well, if we cut them that way, we're going to end up with about 17.5 inches. And so we could easily have even as much as 7 inches of water in the bottom and still a good 10 inches on top. So the reason you'd want to cut them long ways instead of crossways is pretty obvious. Because you'd have more gross surface if you went long ways with them. And many people build aquaponic systems based on these 55-gallon drums. And this guy has four of them sitting there. So they're paid for. They're free, basically, at this point. Um, But when you see them do that, they either do ebb and flow beds or they do rafting beds. And I think cutting them that dimension is fine for either one. And I think both of those work well. I think for a... Soil bed, a wicking soil bed. It's not the way to go. You're better off cutting them across the center. He wanted to know would, he, would I use them for that, or would I go out and buy the rubbermaid, you know, stock tanks that are eighty bucks a piece. I think the rubbermaid stock tanks that are you know sixty to eighty bucks depending on when you get them and where you get them and, and what have you are probably the the hundred gallon tanks are probably the best wicking bed uh, off the shelf product on planet Earth that you will be in the ground and dead, and somebody will still be able to grow out of it. Um, that that's how good they are but you know if you have something there then using it makes a lot of sense you don't have to do them all as wicking beds though though I might I have I have, it's pretty much my favorite way to grow is in wicking beds because it's you can grow anything in soil but with four of them you could make eight wick, that's a lot of that's a lot of grow area and it would be it would be very efficient in a, you know in the way you could set them up in a row the other option would be well, you could cut uh, three of them into um, that type of configuration for soil build, building and take one and cut it in half and make a couple of oven flows out of it or make a couple of rafting beds out of it. I would put it to you this way, though. Even though there's less surface area, if you're talking about the same volume, the same amount of water or soil that's going to go in there, and if you cut them through the center crosswise, and you change your mind. You can still make them in the, you know, clean them out and make them into ebb and flows or deep water. Uh, but you will, you will not, I don't think ever get a good result with a wicking bed as shallow as they would be cut long ways. So you might want to just set your system up that way. And if someday you decide you want some more ebb and flow in it, I mean, go ahead and knock yourself out. Um, but if you want wicking, I would go cross, cross cut. Next, I had a guy from uh, Oklahoma where it gets very hot and very sunny ask me where's the best place to build his system full sun, partial shade, or heavy shade. And uh, he's worried about maybe getting too hot for the fish. And and I would say also, you know, seriously, when you think about a plant uh, growing in a rock media bed, even with the water, because you you know, your water in a, if you're doing an ebb and flow, should never actually, you shouldn't be able to see water. Right. You should come up maybe with an inch of the surface of your rocks and then go back down. That water helps cool it, but that direct sunlight on those rocks gets pretty hot. It's pretty hard on a new plant. The um, same with your wicking beds. They should have a good layer of mulch, so there's a lot of heat there. So, Shade is a good thing, and I, I find that most plants do really well in about a 30% shade. Um, but there is a difference in impact of having shade 30% of the day or having 30% shade throughout the day as in shade cloth which, which tends to be the best. So there's a couple of things to think about. If you if you set this system up and it's in a full shade environment, there's only two things I can think of that would provide full shade, trees and a structure, a building. So if you set it in the in the full shade of a building and it doesn't get enough sun to do what you want, you're screwed unless you're going to demo the building or move the system. If you do it with trees, you can open the trees up, but then you need to make sure that like that's a place where you're okay opening or remove some tree canopy or moving some trees. Uh, you see what I'm saying? A perfect environment to me would be an environment that gets that gets almost full sun until about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then moves in the transits into shade. If you can find that, great. I, I would tend to move toward more sun than you think you need, and this is why. If you build a system, and this guy's talking about building a system very much like the 8x8 footprint that I've come up with, which may become a 10x8 footprint as I continue to doodle and, and daddle and figure out what I really want to do, um, adding shade cloth is cheap. You can go to Greenhouse Megastore, and you can get custom-cut shade cloth for a couple hundred bucks or less. And you can put some, you can put a pergola on it. You can put some shade around the sides. You can adjust that to have the amount of shade you want to have. You can't make sun go to a place that sun can't get to unless you start cutting things down or blowing things up. So air a little bit to the side of, of sun, but if you have a place that is literally beaten in sun all from the time the sun comes up to the sun goes down, that is not a place for a garden. It's not a place for an aquaponic system. Uh, and, and your only solution then is to look at a shade cloth type solution. But yeah, Greenhouse Megastore, I just ordered two thirty percent shade cloths, 12 foot by 16 feet, and I think they were less than 100 bucks a piece. And that's like with the edges reinforced, grommets, all of that stuff. So you would probably, in a, a small system, instead of my big aviary, you probably wouldn't need anything like that. Uh, another guy wrote in, and he wanted to know about introducing good bacteria, Uh, by going to like a creek or a lake or a pond and putting some of that water into your system. You can do that. Um, I'm back to I prefer to get water from a a system that I know is in good health. And this is the thing that people don't understand about water from uh, a lake or a stream that seems to be in good health. You're talking about billions or trillions of gallons of water there. And, for instance, one of the most painful parasites to see in your fish tank, whether it's an aquarium or whether it's an outdoor system, doesn't matter, is ick, which are these little nasty parasites that make these little white beads on your fish. And some fish get through it pretty easily and some don't. There is ick in every bottle of wa- body of water. There is no place where ick doesn't exist. But you seldom see fish in a stream or a lake or a pond with ick on them. And the reason is the volume of water, and there it's not a very efficient parasite. Because basically it has a very short period of time that it can attach to a fish. So once it once it comes out of that little, little cyst, it settles to the bottom, and when it comes up, it has to find a host really quick or it dies. So in moving water, large bodies of water... They don't find their way on the fish very much. But in uh, you know a 200 or 300-gallon uh, IBC, they have a lot better chance, and once it starts, it keeps building. So whenever we bring water in from a source like that, we have like other parasites we can bring in. That said, I don't freak out about it. I just don't like invite it, because I use wild fish in my systems all the time. I usually try to have an isolation tank, but if I don't have time to deal with isolation, just throw them in there. In the end, a strong survive, right? But how much bacteria are you going to get? You don't even really know. So a good system, or I recommend, again, a product, and that product is called uh, API Quick Start, and there's a link in the show notes where you can learn more about that. Um, but the reality is bacteria is everywhere, and if we put fish in the system and put nutri- or put nutrient in the system, either way, bacteria will show up and begin to thrive. And they're going to go through a nasty cycle, Whenever you start a, a, a just a dead system with nothing in it it's gonna it, you're gonna have those those nitrates uh, nitrites you know uh, just spike and when you get that 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 nitrite nitrate nitrite conversion cycle going and you go from nitrates to nitrites the plants can start using them but you usually have fish die and I just don't worry about it put cheap or free fish in there and let them do what they do goldfish $0.14 cents a piece at PetSmart. Um, as far as Kickstarter, another way, kickstart take a piss in it. I mean, sir, I, I know it sounds like, uh, but it's, it's what the fish are doing. Uh, it's ammonia. <laughs> Here's your nitrate. Uh, nit- yeah, your nitrate that's going to be converted to nitrite. Uh, a little bit of Dr. Earth, things like that. You can just, it, it just, I, I use some uh, kelp, liquid kelp and some Dr. Earth. Uh, and some garret juice in the system I started up and as you guys have seen, it's worked perfectly and since I dro- dropped those tilapia in there, I haven't lost any fish at all so, there you go um, same guy wanted to know about doing something like, let's put out a barrel let mosquitoes breed in it and then put the mosquito larvae in while our fish, let our fish eat this mosquito larva um, you're never going to keep a, a cap on that and you're going to um, breed mosquitoes and you're better off without mosquitoes, period um, though I am I am a fan of what's what's known as trapping mosquitoes, uh, which is exactly that like you set up a like a, a, a nasty place for mosquitoes to start living, and uh, once you see mosquito activity and you start to see a couple little wigglers in there, you take a pinch off one of those DT uh, BT dunks and throw it in there and kill them all, and like within a week it wears off and they come back, and you, or you dump it out and start it over, and that's just to to reduce mosquito population, but Mosquitoes do not breed in really clean, nice water. They breed in nasty water. And that means you're going to be introducing nasty water into your clean system. I, I don't think it's a good ROI. I think it's too much work, too much effort, and you're messing around breeding something that we don't need any more of. Uh, there are other ways that we can do this uh, as far as feeding our fish from natural sources. One would be minnow tanks and breed minnows. and you know Use a fish that's a piscivore that will eat other fish and just take a dip net and drop minnows in there. The same guys that you have fish, you have these creeks and stuff close to you, you know, if, if trapping minnows is legal, you can set out some traps. And I mean, if you're in a place where they don't get upset if you leave traps out over a few days, and a lot of places don't for minnows, right, um, they can live in there trapped for weeks. They're in their natural environment. It's like a fish tank. So, you know, you can go once a, a couple times a week if you're not far from home and collect your minnows and rebate your trap and, you know, maybe develop some sort of reserve of minnows in-house. That would be another way. Uh, There are roaches that are bred in the reptile industry that are colony roaches. They cannot, like one roach gets away, it's not going to like turn into a plague where you are. I can't remember what they are, but they are not like a German cockroach. They don't stink, what have you. Uh, You can get a breeding colony of those and basically put them in a float box and some of them will fall into the water and and die. You could do the Madagascar hissing cockroaches and have a floor that's small enough that their babies will all fall through to your fish. Uh, I guess there's a lot of different things you can do. Uh, black soldier fly larvae system would be a great system for composting things that are hard to compost, otherwise like meats. Um, and you can set that up so that there's a 30% incline, and when they're ready to metamorphosize into the fly, the larva climbs up there and just falls in the water, you can put lights around, you know, some LED solar-powered lights around the top of your system at night. It's going to draw insects in that are naturally going to fall in the water. Uh, I've seen a very expensive system, but I can't see why you wouldn't be able to do it cheaply, where you have a light and you have, a, like, a little uh, propeller going around, and the propeller knocks the insects into the system. That seems pretty easy. I think there's a lot of things we can do if you're growing plant fish that are uh, herbace- uh, herbivores that'll eat duckweed and stuff. You can grow, you know, set up a duckweed tank in your system. It'll be good for the health of the system just keep the fish away from it and you know every day go in there take a handful or two and throw it in with your fish but mosquito larvae is not the way I would go this guy also asked about zebra mussels almost completely leaving this out uh, but he's in Canada you're going to be shutting the system down once a year I won't worry about them at all uh, as far as getting them in from your outside world it's just and they're not going to and he asked about some other things like clogging up the system with larvae and all if you're using a dirty water pump which you should be in a larger system especially a garbage disposal attached to a pump So you you figure it out. It's chop, chop, chop. Uh, I have uh, a solid separator in the heart of my big system, and I have it water-bridged over to a tank, and every once in a while, one of those little perch will swim up that water bridge over and into the solid separator, and sooner or later end up with his ass sucked in that pump, and I will at times find a piece of fish in one of my ebb and flow beds 25 feet away where he got chopped up and sent through and delivered to the ebb and flow bed. So no, I wouldn't worry about that. Um... what does and doesn't go into an aquaponics uh, ebb and flow bed? Uh, So this was a question that the guy basically asked. He has a friend who wants to do aquaponics. He makes a lot of charcoal. He wanted to put charcoal into his ebb and flow bed and or possibly wood chips. Uh, No and no. I I see no advantage to that. The, The reason we use charcoal in our filtration systems in indoor aquariums is to remove excess toxins and waste products and keep the water looking clear and things like that. In an aquaponic system, all of those things are part of a biological cycle that's being used and broken down to feed the plants. So we would be actually actively interfering with the the water chemistry that we're looking to encourage if we did that, so no on the charcoal. There's also another thing. Well, first of all, the charcoal will only, any activated charcoal will only do that for so long, and it will basically become full, and it won't do that anymore. But it may do it for a long time if you put a lot of it in there. And let's say we talked about ick earlier, you get ick in your system, and you decide that you want to treat your system with copper, because that's probably the best thing to treat it with at that point. Well, if you were doing that indoors in an aquarium, you would remove your charcoal filter inserts, okay? Uh, before you get a medication, because it will take that medication out. It will do what it, it will be a filter. It will do what it's supposed to do. Well, if you have it mixed into your grow bed, how do you remove it? So I just don't think it's a good idea. Now, charcoal mixed into the soil or used as an amendment on top of soil in your wicking beds. Who freaking raw? Yes, all right, because that's that's a home for lots of things to live. Media bed. Lava Rock, Expanded Shale, or Aquaponics Pebbles. And I recommend lava rock for all systems. And if you're gonna spend money on the pebbles or use expanded shale, one to two inch cap. That's the only place you need to be digging anyway. And just put that on the top, that'll save you a lot of money. Uh, but no. Wood chips, no. <laughs> I mean, wood chips are gonna break down into sludge in an ebb and float. This is not no. Wood chips, surface of your wicking beds, not in an ebb and flow bed. You're you're talking about creating anaerobic pockets. I mean, everything that you want out of your ebb and flow bed would not be good uh, with wood chips. The the, the charcoal probably wouldn't really hurt anything or be that big of a deal. I wouldn't do it. I think it's a waste of a resource. But it probably wouldn't actively cause a problem, though it may actually reduce the amount of nutrient available to your plants. And it's a time-based solution that will atrophy out so let's use it as a home for bacteria uh, as tierra nigra in our wicking beds but the wood chips are a bad idea you know that's just not what we're looking for in our ebb and flow beds we're going to clog things up or what we want is free movement of that flush and drain system Um, next i had a question basically what kind of roi do you get on an aquaponic system and the guy asking about it said that, you know, he understands that it's going to vary from person to person, system to system, et cetera. But, you know, what kind of ROI can you expect? So doing some math, I would say that the cost of the anywhere between 64 and 80 square foot system that I've designed, this is including lumber for uprights and a pergola and everything, is somewhere between seven and $800. And that's a pump. That's that's everything. Now, I I honestly recommend that you buy... If you're going to do a two-pump system, you do the two of the same pumps, and you have a third one on the shelf. If you do a one-pump system especially, you have one pump in the system and a matching pump on the shelf. So add somewhere between $50 and $150 to that, depending on the size of your system, pump selection, things like that. But this, that spare is a spare, right? So say $700. Um, well, how long does it take to grow $700 worth of food? Especially when we're like, well, what kind of food are we growing? So one of the things that aquaponics was really good are lettuces. And if you look at the, the for-profit, larger aquaponics organization uh, companies, the number one thing they grow is lettuce, and they do it in deep water beds because it's fast production, fast production cycles. And if you go to the store and look at what a you know, good quality organic mesclun mix or something like that costs, by the pound, it's more expensive than steak, so if you're growing those types of crops, oh let's look at it a different way. Can we produce throughout our growing season twenty dollars a week in produce? And I think we can do way better than that. We're not talking about fish yet. Twenty dollars in produce. Well, if we if we say that and we have let's say a forty week growing season in our climate, right there's our eight hundred bucks. And in one year the system's paid for itself with $20 worth of produce. And if we look at being smart about how we use our systems and doing things like when we do buy a head of lettuce at the store, like a head of romaine, instead of eating 100% of it, we eat 90% of it. And instead of cutting the base off, we pull the leaves off and we leave a nice little core, right, almost looks like a little Feed Me Seymour plant when we do that at the end. And we drop that core in there and it grows back. Well, what's that head cost? three bucks four bucks okay so now that it grew back that's another three to four bucks that we don't have to spend because we just used it again you know a bunch of green onions is a dollar even for organic but we can grow them five or six times so that dollar we spent just became five dollars worth of produce then if we start looking at our fish now I'm a big believer that fish are not the number one product out of an aquaponic system food is or I'm sorry vegetables are but if we're doing something like we go to a local little fishing hole and put a, you know dig some worms up out underneath the oak tree, put them in a can and go down, take a little number ten bait holder hook in a bucket with a little air pump in it, and sit there and spend about an hour catching you know 20, 30, 40 sunfish, and we do that a couple times a year to add to our systems. Those fish are free, and they'll take a year. You know, depending on how big they are. Now I the thing: if you can catch fish that are four, five inches, six inches long, and a lot of places it's no trouble to catch perch like that. Growing them up to like you know nice hand-sized, eight-inch fish is a, you know, another eight, nine months. Well, those fish when we harvest them and give us about a half a pound of fish. What's the cost of fish? Three ninety-nine, four ninety-nine a pound for the cheapest you can get, and ain't grown the way you grew it. So even if we produce, let's say fifty pounds of fish. Out of our system a year, at 3 bucks a pound, it's $150. And I think you're going low end there. So I think you're looking at a one-year turnaround if you are smart about how you run it. Then there's the other thing you have to think about. A huge part of the expense in these systems is your, your, your main tank or tanks and your pump. And I don't think most people have any idea how much you can grow out of that heart of that system. You see people build these systems, they have like four grow beds. If that's all you want, great. But adding a grow bed is cheap relative to the cost of the whole system, and it expands production. You can expand a 300-gallon main heart tank almost infinitely. You will run out of how far that pump can move water for you before you're, you're putting too much on the system. If you feel like, hey, I, I need more nutrient, you can put wicking beds in, and it doesn't matter. Right? Because you could just fertilize your wicking beds with solid organic fertilizer and garret juice and things like that. You could add a little bit of fertility directly to the system. You could certainly add minerals on some level to the water and let it go through the system. So your ROI is going to be proportional to how much you would go off of that initial investment. Because we can do things like if we have a let's say we have a deep water bed for extra fish, a little 100 gallon Rubbermaid tank. And It's real easy then to throw a couple boards across it, take a 21 gallon uh, uh, mixing tray from Lowe's or Home Depot, fill it with you know lava rock and put a bell siphon on it and, and let it siphon into that fish tank instead of water just coming into that fish tank and deep grow bed or deep raft bed. So now we've added another two and a half square feet of grow area, and we've done it for less than 20 bucks. And that water had to come to that tank anyway. So the more you can attach to that heart, the faster you can get an ROI. But overall, that ROI is really good. And then electricity costs are pretty low. I mean, your average pump that's running these systems uses less electricity than the CPU in your computer. You know, a CPU running is going to run about 300 to 350 watts. And I have pumps out there running fairly large systems that are using less than 100 watts, less than 100 watt light bulb. And then we can we can cut that price down. We can get ourselves a little you know fifteen dollar uh, timer. That does not have to run all the time. Your system could shut down every night at midnight, and turn back every night at like five a.m. Especially if in your fish tanks, you ran uh, let's say you ran an air compressor based um, O2 system in where your not the whole system, just in where your fish live, and you had it set up that when the pump Went off, that came on and takes a lot less electricity. Or that could even run full time. My buddy David, to his pond, he's doing this. He has a shop-size air compressor. It's like a big old, like you have in a gas station to run impact tools. He's got an airline with a great big air stone I gave him run to his pond. And he has the bleed valve on the, or the, the, the pressure-setting valve on that side of the compressor tank at like 2 PSI. So it's just about two PSI. But it's a huge volume of air because it's a big tank. He said it kicks on once or twice a day for like 15 minutes to to, to fill back up. So if we did that as an oxygen solution, we have a backup redundancy if we're going to need the air compressor for other things anyway. If we don't, then it's it's an expense. But if if it's just there like it is for him. So there's all types of ways to get efficient on your energy savings. You know, in the middle of summer here in July, I might not be comfortable shutting off my my pump from eleven at night to seven in the morning. I might want to reduce that down from like let's say one to six, but it's still you know close to a third of a day that that pump's not running, and it's already low draw. So there's a lot of ways to tweak these systems, and I think it's very very personal. But if you can't get a system to pay back in a year, you're either not putting enough effort into growing things in the system or you've overspent on the system that you've built. And even then, I think even if you mess up pretty bad, it's two years. And then everything's, in my view, free. Okay, next question is one I've gotten various forms of a lot since I set up this system. Uh, it's basically how do you deal with sludge if you don't have a solid separator? If you have all these fish pooping and peeing in this fish tank and that system's not running water through like a spiral filter or some sort of a solid separator, you know, how do you deal with it? I do have a solid separator in my large system, which is run on two 330-gallon IBCs. Um, And I've I've frankly been underwhelmed with the amount of gook that comes out of there. That said, what comes out is very inky black. And very, very strong smelling for, I don't know, the first 10, not even 10 seconds. I would say the first 5 seconds when I open the valve, what comes out is pretty disgusting looking. And then it just looks like the rest of the water in the system. Um, That's because I have a good system. It's well designed, running through a lot of biological filtration and breaking down a lot of that stuff. Uh, It goes into the ebb and flow beds. The ebb and flow beds are full of worms. The worms are eating it. They are contributing to the system's health overall. So I think by having a good, healthy system, that is moderated. Uh, though we have had some sludge issues in my uh, my metal tank-based system, running through a three-tier uh, overfall, overfall, uh, uh, waterfall-type system. Um, but since we've changed to some different things, it's actually become a lot less of an issue. Uh, but here's my view what we're going to do always with these systems with our pump we want our pump at the mid-level of the water if it's going to be in a in a main tank fish tank type situation again if you're using a dirty water pump that can chop fish up and chop things up get yourself a five gallon bucket drill a bunch of little tiny holes in it and stick the pump inside there put a lid on it put a hole in the lid for the pipe to come through and house your pump in there so fish don't go in there and die okay because uh, they will. It'll chop. Like I said, I've found pieces of them uh, in, in ebb and flow beds. Um, but we're going to keep that water pump at mid level. And most of our detritus is going to be on the top floating or it's going to sink to the bottom. There's not a lot of it going to be suspended in a healthy system. So we might start to build up a layer of sludge on the bottom. So, one thing we could do if we're using a 300 gallon Rubbermaid tank as our fish tank is we should have plumbed a valve to the bulkhead that comes with it before we filled it up. So that we can do maintenance and drain it and move it and shit like that. So all you really have to do is open that valve and a lot of the stuff that's on the bottom is going to come right out. So we could just run a hose or a pipe or something, you know, somewhere we want that really great fertility water to go like a swale with some fruit trees in it. And I don't know, once every two or three weeks, open that up and use, just use the tank itself as a solid separator. Now, obviously it's a pretty big surface area on the bottom. It's not going to take everything with it. If we're worried about it, and remember what I said about worrying, but if we're worried about it, then I recommend you get something I have, and I use it occasionally with my IBCs, even though it's a solid separator. It's called Python. And it is a aquarium siphon. And the way you work it is you hook it up, you can hook it up to a, a faucet that has a hose adapter on it, or garden hose, or garden hose bib, and you turn water on it, and it blows water through it, and that creates an incredibly strong suction. And then you use the other end to vacuum the gravel in an aquarium, or in this case, the bottom of an IBC or a stock tank. And it has, it comes with like a one-foot tube for your general aquarium use, but you can get tubes up to six foot long for it. So you can get a four-foot tube, reach the bottom of an IBC really easy. So go out and once a month vacuum the bottom of your tank, and that'll do your water change while you're doing it. And if you use the Python for that, once you're done, flip a valve, turn the water on, it'll Fill the tank rate back up for you. Now, in my case, I have well water, so I don't have to worry about chlorine. But if you're on uh, city water and you're doing that, just look at how much water you took out, throw a dechlorinator in there, and boom, you're good to go. So it's it's a, it's really not a problem. And to me, in not all, but in most systems of uh, the like home scale size, that's probably less headache than dealing with an actual. Um, Solid separator, okay? So that's that's what I'm going to, uh, to recommend there. And that Python just works slick. It's just a great tool. I've done things like this with it. I have some of my deep water beds. I can only drain them so much because they hit the system level, and I want it to really drain them down. So I just threw the python in there and turned the flow on, and once it started going, I shut off the faucet and let siphon action take over and took them down a couple inches to clean fish out of them without them being able to get away from me. So I think it's a good investment. I also have a double-stack 55-gallon fish tank system, and, and cleaning the bottom tank would be impossible without it. Uh, I was unwilling to do a double stacked system with the bottom tank so low until I found that solution. I've done it as an item of the day. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can learn more about it. But I, I would say spending you know 50 bucks on a python, And, you know, once a month doing a water change uh, and using that also as your sludge remover. And, again, just you you can get a 50-foot or 100-foot long hose with the damn thing. You know, set that discharge into a little garden swale or something and it's a function stack. Really, really simple. I, I don't think you need a solid separator until you're stepping up into a fairly large system. The other question I've gotten a lot of is, what fish gives you the best ROI? Best ROI, as in actually what you get back for it, I would probably say koi. Um, I've been told before by people, you'll never be able to sell, sell second-tier koi or whatever. Like, whatever, man. You say whatever you want. I know better. Um, if you cherry-pick the prettiest and nicest uh, long fin, like butterfly koi, you can find it like PetSmart and Petco and stuff like that. And you grow some of those koi in your system, you know, in two years, they're big fish and they're beautiful fish. And, you know, some of those koi like that, they sell for thousands of dollars. You're not going to get that. But, you know, you put that on Craigslist with people that have water gardens and shit, and you want to sell them for 100, 150, 200 bucks, you can get that. And you're not going to sell 20 of them. But you can sell two or three a year. Well, if you sell three a year at 100 bucks, that's $300. Remember our ROI on the system being about 800 bucks for the system I talked about? Okay, there's 300 of it, but let's look at it a different way. we got to feed these guys. Well, if I just sell two at, for 200 bucks, I can feed fish in an aquaponic system of the size we're talking about for a year for less than $200 without even... I mean, just fish chow from the fish store, right? Or from the the, the, the ag store is a better place to get 50-pound you know, bags. Don't go buying it at PetSmart. So... I mean, right there, those couple of fish pay for things. My buddy David said he's sold goldfish for fifty dollars, like you know the little feeder goldfish we're always talking about. You get one that gets up to like a you know eight, ten inches long with really long, pretty fins and a bunch of different colors. Asian heirloom carp, and some yuppie will pay fifty bucks for it because they don't want to wait for theirs to grow. So I, I think that ornamental fish are your 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 best ROI because let's again take a look at that we could grow uh, you know some koi and sell a few a year and if we wanted fish to eat we could go buy high quality fish to eat or we could put it back into our system for food i'm back to the humble sunfish bluegill pumpkin seeds you know uh, fish like the red ear sunfish um, those types of fish because I don't know a place in America that there's not some place, if there's any place to catch fish, that there's not some place nearby that you can't get them for free. And they are fantastic food quality fish. From a feed conversion standpoint, tilapia, you, there's nothing that grows from a little tiny, they call them fingerlings when you buy them, and they're more like fry, to a, a plate-sized fish in seven to eight months. That I don't know of anything. So feed conversion, tilapia, dollars in the pocket koi ornamental koi and um, from a food standpoint I would say bluegills because you have no additional investment those tilapia fry you're gonna pay a dollar a piece for it or more or a little less but while you have shipping into them and everything like that you're gonna be at like a dollar25 so you have a dollar25 into that fish before you wait to see if it dies in the first two weeks you see so try to compare that on a dollars to meat ratio. With a fish that you get for free, and if it dies, you don't care. You just go get more. And again, you can let nature grow. That whatever the size of the fish you can get locally is with bluegills, or their their, their cousins, that you can commonly get, that's just under the size you would not just go ahead and eat anyway. That's that's where I would aim for. Like if you could easily catch five inch fish, uh, maybe it would take you three or four trips to get as much for your system as you want i throw all the two, three, and four inches back and stick to five inches. If you can easily get six inches, do that. If you can easily get fish that are big enough to eat already, go get those. And the thing that I love about bluegills and other, we call them, I know people are going to get all ass about this, we call them perch in Texas. I know they're not the same as yellow perch and real, true perch, okay? We call them perch in Texas. I never called them perch where I grew up. I grew up in Florida. We called them brim. And in Pennsylvania, we called them sunnies. When in Rome, do what the Romans do. When in Texas, do what the Texans do. They call them perch. The whole little perch family. You can get those fish six, eight inches long. You can bring them home, throw them in an IBC, and they might be stubborn for a week. But when the week, they take the pellets. They start eating pellets. So if you can catch hand-sized bluegills, throw them in there and let them get as big as you want before you eat them. But you can basically use it like a fish storage system. Then, if you have the ability to get fish like that anytime you want during the peak season of fish, which was nice and warm out of freezing cold. Go get them during that time. Throw them in that tank and just harvest them when you want. You can't beat that from a financial meat-on-the-plate standpoint. But remember, this is a system that, that we see fish as a bonus from. Our best ROI is on the plants. But as an example, I put in a couple spaghetti squash plants this year. I don't know how many spaghetti squash I grew, but I just looked at my windowsill where I have them sitting, and I have five left still. Five still from that system. I had to eat at least eight of them. You know, they're a few bucks a piece, but like that was just two plants in two beds They grew other stuff. So the ROI is there if you work the system. Uh, another question I've got is where do I get my black oil sunflower from microgreens? So there's about to be a gigantic gasp that is about to go out across the whole of the TSP community. You know those big, giant bags of black oil sunflower seeds you get at Tractor Supply, like a 40-pound bag for like $16 that you feed to birds and that I, I grow sprouts with to feed to my ducks? I have gone to growing my my sprouts out of those. I, I know, oh my God, GMO! Oh, okay, listen. Black oil sunflower is one of the most resilient plants on planet Earth. It is tough as nails, and... There is no GMO black oil sunflower seed because the the, the plain old black oil sunflower seed grows so well that you couldn't sell it. No one would buy it. All right? So there's no GMO black oil sunflower. Next, we're going to spray it with all kinds of nasty. Okay, first of all, if it was as toxic as you think it is, do you think I would feed it to my ducks? Next, my buddy David, who I keep bringing up here, we call him Deacon, Deacon David for our, our trip to uh, New Hampshire. Um, called like the Sunflower Growers Association, some shit like that. And basically found out no one sprays anything on blackwell sunflower. Like it's just, like there's no, like you don't use an input, even on a conventional farm if it's not necessary, because it costs money. So they don't spray them with anything. They're basically a crop grown as an interim crop, so in other words, they've grown something, they plow the field, they put the stuff down, they grow that, they harvest, they grow something else, or there are people that grow it as dedicated growers, especially for biofuels and there's just there's there's nothing they spray on it now. Could it mean that that field has been sprayed with other ag chemicals and stuff like that? Sure, I'm not in love with that idea, but i'm not spending you know six dollars a pound for organic, special sprouting sunflower seeds, or more than that. When I've been eating this stuff, it tastes great. My ducks have been eating it. They're the healthiest ducks anybody's ever seen. Um, no, I that's what I use. And I have no problem using quality cover crop seed from, like, daikon radishes to grow daikon sprouts either. None. Um, and it doesn't bother me. You can do whatever you want, but I, I'm just saying, like, those are crops that are not heavily sprayed because they don't require it. They don't have pest pressure. Nothing much eats a radish leaf once it's up and growing. I've had radishes growing all over here and as long as the ducks don't find them, nothing hurts them. They produce seed all by themselves. Same to a black hole sunflower. I take every year... And I just throw a whole shitload of it out, and a few of them the ducks don't find, and you end up with groves of black oil sunflower. I've had this stuff. black oil sunflower grows in my west pasture where it has not yet been improved. So we're talking about three inches of soil on top of a rock slab with no shade at all all day long in Texas, sometimes in the middle of a drought, and it still survives and grows and produces seed. So I just you do what you want, but once I heard that they don't spray, and I confirmed that they don't spray black oil sunflower, I was done paying a premium on the seed because it's the spray that I'm most concerned with. Okay, um, I was also asked about pollinators in our system, specifically in our greenhouse. So during the time of the year when you need pollination, which is you know, spring through fall, your greenhouse during the day should be wide open. The door wide open, so the pollinators get in there no problem. Uh, in my aviary, the bees do get in. And it's you know quarter-inch mesh, uh, so it's not something a bee can't get through. But they don't come in droves. Uh, I am probably going to set up a mason bee uh, nest inside that system this spring uh, with uh, uh, our partner. The name of the company escapes me right now, but uh, they refer to them as whole bees. They do leaf cutters and masons, uh, crown bees. Uh, so I'll probably, I want, I, I've got two houses from them already, and I've got certificates to order both, uh, spring bees, which are the masons, and summer bees, which are the leaf cutters. I'm gonna set up at least two on property, maybe three. Uh, but one, I'm going to set up right in the aviary. So if you had a place like that, I would recommend looking at something like, you know, leafcutter bees or mason bees uh, inside that system. There are people who do primary greenhouse growing, and they buy pollinating insects. There's lots of different insects that do pollinating, actually release them into the greenhouse. Uh, but in general, for hobbyist systems, just open the windows and doors, and in they'll come. I mean, the aviary acting as a shade house I would just open it up. The reason it stays closed is because there's little birds in there that I don't want to get away and get chomped. So I've also had a lot of questions and concerns about grocery store planning. You know, I've talked about you know, like reusing an onion, uh, like a green onion. You leave about a three-quarter inch tip, cut that off, cut the rest of it up for your green onion. Use stick to tip in an ebb and flow bed or a wicking bed in a grocery pack. Take a celery, a head of celery that you get from the grocery store, pull all of the outer uh, uh, stems off of it, leave the core, stick the core in, it grows back. You have probably the best celery for cooking you can ever get. You can't buy celery like you can grow like that. Because all of our celery, because we want it nice and tender and sweet, is blanched. That's why it comes and you see it like in a tube shape. Well, they tie it up like that, and they force it to grow that way. That's why the outer stalks are somewhat green, and the intervals are very white. And the further you go in, the whiter and lighter color green they get. And that gets sweeter as you get to the heart. Well, if you want to eat celery like raw or something like that, that's, that's what you're looking for. But if you want celery for a paw because you're cooking with it, you want to saute it with onions and peppers for a, uh, a trinity or whatever, uh, you want to use it in soups and stews, you want to mix it into a stir-fry, sliced in on the bias into a stir-fry for that great celery flavor, well, you want those outer stems. In fact, you want more flavor. You know, what they refer to as like a cutting celery. Now, there are celery plants that are specifically uh, bred to be that. And they're the celery I would grow from seed if I was going to grow from seed. But when you grow normal bunching celery without blanching it, that's what you get. So you get this great celery flavor. But what I've heard from people is, well, don't you worry that those, those plants have you know, uh, toxins or pesticides or things like that that can get into your system. Okay, look, let's say you do buy conventional celery to do what I just said. You pull off all of the part, and you wash it off, and you eat it. If you were that worried about that thing not being an organic product, you would not have eaten it. But let's say that you weren't that worried about it, and for some reason you are worried about putting it into your system. Okay, so you've eaten 95% of the volume of the product, and you're okay. And you take this itty-bitty little core, and you stick it in there. And it grows back to the size that it was when you ate it the first time. Do you think the concentrations are higher or lower than it was the first time? Well, almost to non-existent these things are not as persistent as, as some of the health nuts claim that they are and in the end if you would if you are that worried about growing it why are you eating it so the majority of things that we grow in systems are organic some by necessity so for instance i grow a lot of garlic in my system because i, I and i don't grow into bulbs i grow garlic greens and we cut those greens off and use them like chives And the way we do this is we take a bulb of garlic, and we start cooking with it. We start using it. And you start taking those outer bulbs, and you use them to cook with. And eventually you get to like where you've used like 50% of the bulb, and then there are all those little tiny-ass nodules, cloves, that are hard to get much out of. I take all those and stick them in the grow bed. So I I do organic garlic because conventional garlic may be sprayed, may be, not always, but may be sprayed with a growth retardant. And that growth retardant will prevent it from growing. But when it comes to lettuce and stuff like that, if you ate it and it'll grow back, just do it. Another thing you have to buy organic if you want to produce anything from it is sweet potatoes. If you want to do sweet potato slips. And I recently found that Albertsons, and I don't want to be really hard on the company or anything, but Albertsons sold some sweet potatoes that were marked as organic that weren't. Because I picked a couple up, I put them in my oven flow bed, and they rotted. And they wouldn't grow. And uh, so, you know, not everything marked organic is organic. You might say, well, how do you know? Just they grow? Because I took my purple ones, I pulled one out and stuck it in, and it's growing. It started to send shoots up. In the same bed, at the same day and the uh, the ones from the store just got nasty and soft and gooey and never sprouted. So uh, I don't think they were properly marked as being organic. I was also in a hurry that day, and the reason I haven't read them the Riot Act is I may have screwed up and thought I grabbed them out of the organic stack and grabbed them out of the non-organic. It's possible I screwed up. But I'm back to if you're that worried about putting it in your system and eating it, why would you buy it and eat it in the first place? It's just not really – uh doesn't make sense. Last question for today, if I could only have one bed – uh, in my system, I can either have wicking beds, ebb and flow beds, or raft beds. Which one would I pick and why? Well, the good news is I, you don't have to do that. And I'm gonna I'm going to start out with a different way. I'm going to change the question. If I had to eliminate one, which one would I eliminate and why? Rafting. Because while it is the most productive method of growing lettuce, you can grow lettuce in the other systems quite well. And... There's really no need to raft other than high production. And it's so high a production that if it's a hobbyist system, it's more than you'll ever use. I mean, how many heads of lettuce are you going to eat? And it requires kind of this dedication to starting new starts so that they're ready to go in when the old ones come out. But in my systems, I try to have all three. And I always will. I think that rafting, one of the best things in the world that it is usable for, is rooting certain cuttings. Lots of things root well in an ebb and flow bed, but certain things don't root as well in an ebb and flow bed, and they root root like mad in a rafting bed. So you take your raft, and you take like a quarter inch drill bit or a half inch drill bit, and pop some holes in it, smaller holes. You take like the piece of watercress, you stick it in that hole, and in like a week, it's rooted like you wouldn't believe. Uh, so that's one sweet potato slips I have never seen. Sweet potato slips root the way they do in a rafting bed with a flow-through. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But if I had to give one up, it would be the one I gave up. If you force me to do this like a thought experiment, like I've done shows on what's a better survival weapon if you could only have one, a 22 rifle or a 12 gauge shotgun, and it's a thought experiment because that's really not what you're going to do, I would have to say that I would go with um, wicking beds being the bed that I would have of choice. Because there's nothing that you cannot grow in a wicking bed well, except baby watercress. Watercress needs moving water to do well. Every other thing that you can think of that you would want to grow will grow beautifully in a wicking bed. And even things that are like very much like a bog plant, a mar- you can just raise the water level in a wicking bed, and we could grow, you know, water irises for for money. I mean, you could do anything with a wicking bed. So maybe a better way to look at this, is if I were building a system that we're going to get quite large, let's say 12, 15 beds in it, what would the majority of beds be would be wicking beds. And again, when you start looking at expansion of the system, if we go with wicking beds, our expansion capacity is almost unlimited. You'll run out of space before you'll run out, because all you're doing is running water through. That's all you're doing is running water through the system and you could go as you know as big as you, you could you don't even need aquaponics to do aquaponic style growth in a wicking bed and have it work great if you had a farm pond you could put a you know a massive row of wicking beds up next to that farm pond and just run water through it and you're going to get all kinds of amazing growth out of that so if i had to pick one it would be a wicking bed and i think most systems would do well with like a couple ebb and flow beds Maybe one rafting bed and everything else wicking. And a lot of times we can do rafting in the fish tank, depending on the fish you're growing, as long as sunlight will get to that raft. So remember I talked about bluegills? They don't really tear up the roots of plants very much. They get up in there and kind of pick all kinds of stuff off them and actually make them grow better. Tilapia will eat your roots down in the ground so there's nothing left. So that little net pot, your roots will never get much outside of that net pot. Now there's things we can do. We could take a larger, big, giant net pot and attach that to our raft and then put our little wicking uh, cups inside that and protect them. But it, it gets to be a lot of work. But bluegills, we can raft right in the fish tank because they just don't chomp down on it very much. So it all depends on how you want to do it. But I would I would try to get all three in any system to have the most options and if you, you you find one particular crop that you want to grow doesn't do well in the other two it does really well in one then you you dedicate that space to that particular crop again watercress watercress grows like mad in an Evan flow bed absolutely insane I am I have ne- you know never seen anything grow like it um, water spinach um, Ipomoea aquatica if you grow that in a in a ebb and flow bed sitting over top of a tank for like deep water and you take some of those vines and train them down into the water and then back out over the side so that it's in the wicking bed and in the water you, I'm telling you half a bushel every 3 weeks out of one paint tray grow bed I mean, or I mean I was concrete trake road is what I was getting this summer a half a bushel every couple weeks. I was feeding it to the ducks because I couldn't keep up with it. I had to end up chopping most of it out and I couldn't get at the pipes to work anymore. It was it was pretty insane so that's, that's kind of how I'd answer that. Anyway, we've wrapped up another episode. hope you enjoyed today's show um, I want to remind you all of the resources I talked about today are in the show notes so you can look them up. I want to remind you again, we do have a new sponsor, Ridge Wallet, so it does a discount for the MSP. That article went out today. And you can always support our, our show by doing what? Shopping at tspaz.com when you're going to shop online. There we will find all of my Amazon reviews, but as long as you do your shopping through tspaz and the work and, and, and whatever you buy, you're going to support the work that we do. Today's product is one I've been wanting to bring back for like two months. Uh, it's a good time to talk about this product because we're you know in the winter, we're, the time of blackouts and things like that, it, it allows you to use the $30,000 generator in your driveway as a generator. You didn't know you had a $30,000 generator. It might be more. It might be less. But your car is an electrical generator, a damn good one. It runs on a lot of, I don't care if it's gas, a lot of what's going on out there is electrical. <clears throat> and there's a battery that causes it to start. Well, we could take an inverter like the Whistler XP800i, and we could hook it up to that battery, and we can do things like we can run our refrigerator for a couple hours a day just for a couple hours a day and keep all of our food okay in the refrigerator. And in the, you know, we can run small TV sets. You can't run everything at once, but we can run almost anything in the home other than like a central air system or a heater or something like that. Even a window unit uh, air conditioner would be too much for that. But so much flexibility for so little. Well, I don't know what happened, but Whistler xp 800s disappeared a couple months ago. And I've been trying to bring this thing back around as an item of the day, and they just haven't been available I got an email this morning from somebody asking what would they buy instead of the Whistler. And before answering, I just checked Amazon and, son of a bitch, they're back for about 50 bucks. So they were selling for like $200 a week ago because you, know, you could only get them one here and one there. 50 bucks is about you know, what they should sell for. That's why they're the best bang for the buck in inverters. Check them out, the Whistler XP800i, item of the day, and you can always help us by doing what? Shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day, and uh, this is a song by a band, a country band that I'm not a, a massive fan of. Uh, they were a very successful band in the 80s and 90s, um, and I do like some of their music, and I actually love this particular song a great deal, but they were originally known as the Mark... Miller Band, and they debuted to the American people on a show called Star Search, Ed McMahon's old show from the 80s. To my knowledge, they are the only really big success story to come out of that show, and they rebranded themselves, of course, Sawyer Brown. And they have some good music, but eh, they're not like one of these bands. Like I, I just like I have all their albums or anything like that, um, even from back in the day when people bought albums. But I do like some of their music, and this is probably my favorite song by them. It's called "The Walk." And if you've if you've seen the uh, the official video for it, it starts out with the little kid going to school, and his dad taking him down the driveway to the school bus, and he doesn't want to go. And then the midterm is the kid's eighteen, and he set out you know wild and free, just to wander. And by the lyrics alone, I don't think you would ever understand what the intention of the artist was. But when you watch the video, you see this young man that's got long hair and he's riding a motorcycle and, you know, he's just a typical American kid trying to be, what he, you know, figure out what he wants to do with his life at 18. Gets a draft notice for Vietnam. And his father had been a World War II vet and had been through the same experience. And the ending verse, it talks about his father, the old man, is at the end of his life. And... He doesn't want to, you know, obviously this young, this, this middle-aged man now doesn't want to go there with his father and his father having to say finally goodbye to this place here on Earth. But his father once again tells him, I've been through it, you'll be okay. It's something we all have to do. And I think this song, while it goes through those three stages of life, that kind of, you know, changing from a kid that lives at home to having to go to school to going from a standpoint, whether it's military service or just leaving home, going to college, whatever it is, stepping out on your own to the point where you have to say goodbye to a parent. And as tragic as that is, I'll tell you what's worse than a child having to say goodbye to a parent in old age, a child having to say goodbye to a parent at a young age, or a parent having to say goodbye to a child when that child is still a child. So when we are in our 40s, 50s, whatever, and we, we lose our parents, it's, it sucks. But it's the best possible outcome with our current level of technology, is it not? That you grow to be old, you live a life well, and you pass on. Even though it's about those three stages in this song, I think it applies to any situation. Well, we have to go out and do something that we really don't want to do. But sooner or later, everybody has to do it. That's an interesting thing about death. It's something we all seem to fear so much, but... Sooner or later, it's part of being mortal. It's something we all have to do. And it makes life so much more important, so much more critical that we get the most from life. We need to treat life like the best freaking baby back rib you ever ate in your life, where you suck the sauce residue out of the bone to where when you throw it to the dog, he looks at you like, what the hell? What the hell? Like, I don't deserve... Like, that's how we need to treat life. We need to extract every bit of joy and wonder from life. Because sooner or later, we'll take that last walk. The thing is, we take an awful lot of walks in between them. And sometimes the walk that we fear the most is the one that we most need to take to move on to that next level. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
1: Down our long dusty driveway and didn't want to go, but I sat out with tears in my eyes a- wondering. Daddy took me by the hand, looked out at the school bus and his little man, and said, Don't worry, boy, it'll be alright. Cause I took this walk, you're walking now Boy, I've been in your shoes Well, you can't hold back the hands of time It's just something you've got to do So dry your eyes, I understand Just what you're going through Cause I took this same walk with my own man Down our long dusty driveway Set my mind to go Well I was Eighteen and wild and free And no wonder Daddy took me By the hand looked out of the world And it has grown man and said don't worry Boy it'll be alright Cause I took walk you're walking now boy i am in your shoes well you can't hold back the hands of time it's just something you got to do so dry your eyes I understand just watch what you're going through because I took this same off with my own man Out our long dusty driveway It's time we both would go Well he had grown old and gray And his mind was a-wondering Daddy took me by the hand Said I know where we're going And I understand Don't worry boy It'll be alright Cause took Walk, you're walking now boy I've been in your shoes well you can't hold back the hands of time it's just something you've got to do so dry your eyes I understand just what you're going through because I took this same walk with my own